Okay, hello and welcome to the Body Clinic Radio podcast. I'm very pleased to welcome a special guest today. I've got Mr. Simon Reynolds with me. Hi, Simon. Hello. Welcome. Thank you. Good. good. Um, I'm really, I'm really pleased to have Simon uh, on the show. Uh, I'm quite lucky. I've known Simon for quite a long time. We won't say how long because then uh, people might be able to guess our age. But, um, but yeah, I've known him for quite, quite a while, um, and it's been a pleasure, sort of getting to know him and also learning from him. He's helped me quite a lot in my career. Um, and um, yeah, just wanted to get him on the show, uh, discuss with you all what he's been up to, what he's achieved and all the, all the awesome people he's been working with. So welcome, Simon. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so um, a little bit about sort of me and Simon. So I met him, I can't remember how long ago it was now, but I was working with a young uh, racing driver. He was moving from carts to cars and he was, he was a McLaren young driver, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, that, I believe so. Yeah, uh, yeah, James Paul. So shout out to James if he's listening. Um, but at the time, I was working with James, and then um, we would come into McLaren, uh, see Simon, and he'd sort of assess James, and then we'd sort of work together on his training. And I would be basically just picking his brain for the entire time. <laughs> Not much of a brain there. But. Um, so re- regarding that, it was is really helpful for me because. The amount, of, the amount of knowledge and sort of race-specific knowledge that Simon had was uh, was massive. Um, how, how long have you, have you been working as a driving conditioning coach, would you say? So I started McLaren in 2006. Yeah. So since that, that point, going forwards. And have you always, so from obviously working in health and fitness, have you always been driver-specific? Is there? No. So what, what was the journey like for you? Yeah, it was a funny one, really. So... My journey started uh, when I sort of finished my education, um, was looking to pursue a career in health and fitness. Uh, At that period, there was sort of limited courses available in that sort of area. So after doing a few vocational courses to get qualified um, as as a trainer, I started working in a health club. And, and that's where I found my passion. And then from that point forward, over that 11-year period working in sort of health and fitness industry, I furthered my education and also my insight into sort of human performance and started working with a few amateur and a couple of professional athletes. And then I wanted to pursue more of, more of that side rather than working with, shall we say, the, the normal person, yeah, the, the pub, general public. General yeah. public, absolutely. Uh, just because it was more challenging yeah. and you had to gain a lot more insight into sports science and the application of sports science, uh, working with athletes and sort of developing and progressing them over a period of time. So I applied for a part-time position at McLaren and after a sort of nervous, on my part, interview with uh, the legend uh, Dr. Aki Hintzer and the two Formula One trainers at that point and then the uh, physio Adam uh, who then became uh, Lewis's uh, performance coach. Uh, I ended up getting the position and from that point started working part-time in the facility helping Adam sort of build up the sort of portfolio management side to open up to McLaren employees. And then we started working with the race team and then slowly I progressed into working with the drivers 
uh, off the success of that because at that point it was the first time that they'd started to look at the race team Hume performance and I believe one of the only teams that were looking at it at that point so it was an exciting opportunity and period for me and I was completely out of my depth yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, coming from sort of the background of working in a in a sort of health club environment I mean a, a very prestigious health club I must say but uh, with with some very good good clients but um, but yeah I did feel out of my depth at that point and then slowly I integrated into the system and the company and the processes and Aki uh, effectively guided me and mentored me over that period and his specialists which was incredible yeah and I'd love to do a story on that sort of period at some point uh, especially talking about uh, my my sort of time with uh, Aki Hinsa and the specialist and things like that. Because the the experience and also the stuff you must have learned there must have been awesome, you know. And I bet it was constant learning all the time. It was. Every day it was a learning day. Every day now for me is a learning day, so I'm always reading and always watching podcasts and and uh, what, and TED Talks and things like that so yeah. to further your sort of knowledge uh, because... I always think I know 5% and I want to know 95%. Yeah. And I'll st- uh, until the day I leave this earth, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll know 10%. It's, um, it's, it's nuts. It's in, in this industry we're in, it's, you, you do have to just keep learning. Um, I, at first, I, I found it a bit frustrating. As I was, I come out of uni, um, for example, and I had a good wealth of knowledge and I thought, right, that, that's me done. Um, but obviously, I just have to continue to improve my knowledge. Um, but yeah, and then I went into strength conditioning, similar to you, So and then into nutrition. But it's like you're always learning. And at the time, when I was sort of younger, I was like, oh, this is so tiring. But I actually now, I love it. I'm always reading. I'm always looking for research, always trying to bounce off other people to get, to basically to get more knowledge and yeah. then to, to sort of apply the best knowledge you can to the people that you're working with. Um, and I, I think that's so important in what we do. And also, essentially, if you think you know everything, you know nothing, you know. So it's, it's important to just keep keep evolving and keep learning. It's when I when I first uh, brought James over, I was conditioning him for his car and then he moved into his car, um, which at first I thought well, that, that would be no problem. But then when I started to work with you and it's like, okay, we need to be seriously conditioning his neck because he's, he's going to... F4 first so obviously we need to be now working on his neck his, his upper body similar to Kine but, but but also completely different and his, his seating position physically is disgusting if, if you look at a driver's seated position it's just not an, an optimal position at all but yet they still have to maintain strength power endurance in, in that seating position yeah absolutely um, it's not a conducive environment for biomechanics and posture and um, it's it's a hostile environment which you have to condition the young these young drivers and young athletes into over a period of time. So just going back to talking about the sports therapy side and strength conditioning things like that, when you're preparing drivers, you've got two different hats on. So as I call it, so you got your strength and conditioning hat when you're preparing drivers out of the cockpit, and then you've got your therapy hat when you're at the track so um, I actually studied at the uh, 
School of Sports Therapy in um, situated near Bath, not too far away from the university there, uh, for a few years, and that gave me great insight into sort of working a little bit deeper into the sort of therapy side. Whereas pre prior to that, it was more on the strength and conditioning and the personal training side. So I believe as a performance coach working with drivers, then you you need to sort of have those two hats on uh, for being at the track and then being away from the track. Yeah, especially with some of the temperatures they're in and um, obviously some of the tracks are really enduring. So some of the G-forces they're getting, um, it's incredible how from a race weekend, they'll be in the car from Thursday all the way through till Sunday and Sunday's the longest day they're in the car. And it's like they're just being battered around the whole time. So therapy is so so key. So it's going to obviously yeah. help them recover. And also they just need to be ready for each lap, each race. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I think going back to my early days working with the young drivers, um, I remember the first driver that I started working with was around sort of 14 years old. And at that point, it was then a case of, me being a conduit of information from the specialist to filter that through to the driver. And although although sort of my mastery in academia uh, was, nowhere, was, was nowhere near that level, um, I was able to filter that information effectively through to the driver using my skills as a, as a coach and as a, as a person who, you know, hopefully tends to get on well with people and sort of interact well yeah uh and and i think those those two sort of skills kind of go hand in hand uh, and that's the same way what i work now is that i have a have a number of specialists that i can go to who are the masters within their their sort of specialism or within their, their domain, remit sort within of, their yeah. remit yeah and and they and i can ask them questions and they can filter i can filter that information through so for example sports nutrition um then you've got the sports science side, you've got the sort of pediatric strength conditioning side um, to work and, and monitor sort of the maturation and the growth of, of young athletes as they as they develop. And then a number of other specialists, um, performance vision specialists, psychologists, etc. It's um it's incredible. People don't really realise for someone to be on top of their game, the amount of su- the support network they need. Um, and I think quite a lot of people take it for granted un- unless you're um, a driver in amongst it. No one really realises what is required and what is needed. Um, it's like even going back to the therapy, some people would, would be, well, why would they need treatment? It's like, well, you do that many laps, you do that many corners, you hit the brake that hard. Um, it, it's crazy the the endurance they're going through. And yet people just see us, they just sitting there, turn the steering wheel when there's so many more elements it's like when you speak to people that aren't in the industry they just do not do not understand what is required and yeah most most top drivers have got psychologists they speak to a nutritionist to make sure they're getting the absolute most out of whatever they're consuming getting the right fuel in their body and also enabling them the right recovery so it's such a network of people and like it's it's great that you've got that to your um basically in your contacts and you can contact those people for whatever you might need it just ends up giving your athlete or whoever you're working with all the elements they need in, in order to succeed so it's awesome yeah exactly i think i think it's important for people to understand that when an athlete you know effectively in most sport is on their own you know in the co- cockpit or the cart or whatever they're in is that they have a team behind them 
who are helping to repair them. So whether that be the race team who are preparing the actual machine that they're driving or operating to the actual human performance specialists who are working to make sure that they're optimizing their performance or their driving performance in the actual cockpit or the cart. So I think it's important for carters especially and their grassroots to have and build a team of specialists around them who can then support them through that process. And it's extremely important, especially in the sort of maturation years, as I call it. So the development years when they're sort of going into, as most people would recognize the word sort of puberty, you know, sort of from 12 years old onwards uh, and for females a little bit earlier, maybe. Um, but of course it's, in, it's very individualized and normally speaking around that sort of 14 uh, year old uh, period, they can go through that that peak height velocity or growth stage where they're suddenly developing quite rapidly. Yeah. And coaches need to understand that they need to uh, monitor that very carefully and change or adapt, uh, or in some cases regress the, their programming accordingly yeah. to ensure that the young athlete is still optimizing their development and performance, but not compromising it. Yeah, I, I can I completely agree on this one, and it's it's also incredible when you have got a youth athlete, um, how much they can change in such a small amount of time. Like they can they can shoot up, um, and and their limbs can really really get longer in quite a short space of time. And I think that's why it's so important to record their height and weight all the time. Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, there's a number of calculations uh, which you can use. Um, I think there's sort of three or four different ways of of working out the sort of maturation and growth but the simple ways is effectively taking standing seat standing seated height and also their their body mass um you can also take their femur length uh changes in their femur length which are their sort of thigh thigh bone length and also you can take sort of girth measurements and body measurements and things like that over that period as well and there's calculations that you can use to uh, to help the accuracy of that um, however it's best to have somebody who's more specialized to get a more accurate uh, sort of measurement on that and a lot of, a lot of sort of pro, pro professional teams use um, sports scientists uh, for that very reason now if we're working with drivers then we sometimes have to ask parents to actually measure that and obviously understand the accuracy is not going to be quite it's quite, quite on point. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it still gives us an idea and we can still monitor when there's some some maybe some rapid or increases over a short period of time. So so yeah, no, it's definitely important in that in that respect. It is um so some of the drivers I work with from carts into cars, um yeah, when they were going through that stage, you, you might, if, if they are, they're awake for four weeks and then you see them again, it's just like, oh, but sometimes the amount they can increase in height. And then when you start moving or stretching, you just, it just sort of go through, uh, they're just a little bit more gangly. They're just not as controlled. And, that, and, that, and that's why um, it's so important, like you say, to regress what you're doing um, back to basics, just, just to sort of deal, deal with that period, you know. Yeah, and that's the importance of monitoring as well is that you you're throughout you, you know you do your main assessments throughout the year but then you also do what I call mini assessments so the mini assessments can give you sort of insight into how the how the, how the athlete is progressing 
and also that that maturation stages can be monitored closely um which which is really important so so yeah absolutely in some cases you may have to regress certain movement patterns their neuromuscular control and their sort of overall stability may and mobility may change which means that certain movements where they were progressing really well suddenly change because they're adapting and growing into a new body their limb lengths are changing so therefore as you describe it they they get more unstable yeah so then you have to regress back to working on their technical competency with very basic core movements and similar to nutrition what works has worked for thousands and thousands of years and there's no faddy exercises and 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 things like that the core basic movement patterns you know pushing um, pulling and squatting, lunging, and, and rotational patterns—you um, know—the real basic foundation movements that that provide us with our athletic foundation are are still the the core of what what, what we do. Yeah, the key now, elements. Yeah, key yeah. elements. And the fitness industry sometimes create fashion yeah. uh, by taking some of those movements and performing some interesting. Um, adaptations adaptations we and it's call funny it. you, you, you look at the videos and you think oh on some of them social media you think what are you doing like there's... yeah I think I think I think young people especially need to be careful what they view on social media and and always you know seek specialist advice so you know that's what we're here for effectively to provide hopefully some scientific rationale and using principles um, to actually teach uh, young athletes how to move and perform effectively yeah so going back to building that team behind the athlete is so important and one of the main specialists in that regard is then the physiotherapist so using a very good sports physiotherapist i use um, the best physiotherapists that i know who are in fact a a husband and wife um, who who worked with top athletes uh, former one drivers and and have a have an extensive history of working with young athletes, and so I, they they help me effectively monitor uh, drivers, of, you know, from the assessment process at the beginning, and then monitoring them throughout with additional assessments throughout the year. So again, that that sort of conduit of information that we are, we then have the team of specialists behind us to back up what we are doing effectively as coaches. Yeah. And even, um, say, if you had someone come to you that was a little bit older and you could tell had a few few issues, then at least um, obviously send them off to someone that you trust and they're going to get a, a really good evaluation and then you can deal with how to improve what they're dealing with as well as conditioning them, getting them race ready, you know. So that's, um, that's so important. And as well, having experience in the field is also essential. Um, sometimes it's interesting when you see a coach Obviously, everyone's trying their best, but when someone doesn't quite have the experience in motorsport and what what the driver's going to be dealing with, how long he's going to be at the track for, I think some people think, oh, they just turn up for their races. Well, no, they have to be there early, have to get ready, have to go through data, speak to their technicians and mechanics. It's, 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 it's a long, enduring day. And yes, they are racing, but that's only a small part. And they still need to be eating all day. They still need to be hydrating. Um, they, they need to be ready for when they're getting in the car. They need to have all the elements they need, their helmet, their everything. So it's like, it's not just, oh, okay, they're racing now. It's like a whole whole day of activity 
just for that one race. Um, and that's that's something that people don't really realise until they're actually, if they go and watch, they might be like, oh, paddock is full of drivers. No one's racing yet, but it's because there's so much more to them than just racing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the pro- the preparation process begins prior to getting to the track and then it just runs its course through the weekend. And as you said, the preparation process begins early in the morning when they have breakfast. So that's their nutritional preparation. When they get to the track, uh, they immediately go and see their engineers. Um, if we're talking formula, if we're in karting, um, it's still very early mornings. And then they would go and see their team and talk to their mechanic and the team manager, etc. So, you know, from that grassroots, they're learning how to prepare very early on, uh, especially focused on sort of preparing to, to, you know, to race and going through data, even karting. And that becomes even more extensive when they move into formula. So after breakfast, getting to the track and then from there spending quite a bit of time, uh, if we're talking formula here from Formula 4 upwards, um, and then it just slowly increases as they graduate and transition up to, uh, in in some cases, Formula 2 and then Formula 1. But obviously we can also say the same for GT, um, for uh, the endurance racing, and Formula E, etc. Everything works very similar in the fact that they're constantly preparing throughout the weekend for their sessions, uh, for their heats, uh, for practice, qualifying, and then obviously for the racing, whether they have one, two, three, four races. Um, in Formula One, obviously, they have the one race, and then there's obviously talk now of having the sprint race, uh, similar to uh, Formula Two, which has a sprint race and a main race. So, yeah, the preparation process, it never ends. And it only becomes more intense over the race weekend. And then the second thing as well is that they have marketing and media commitments. So they have to be put in front of a camera and know how to conduct themselves and be professional. So there's a professionalism part of being an athlete, which is super important to convey the right information on camera, to say the right thing. Sometimes they say maybe the wrong thing. Yeah, (laughs) especially with uh bit of a challenging weekend especially if it's an emotional weekend (laughs) (laughs) when we're emotional we tend to go into that fight or flight mode and our thought process changes and we can become uh, a little bit less professional sometimes in that regard so so again you can train they they especially when they work up to the high levels of formula they're trained in how to deal with that and constantly sort of reminded of of how to conduct yourself on camera and the little tricks you can use, especially from that sports psychology side and things like that. And that getting yourself into that, that mindset where you're not allowing your emotions to dictate your, uh, or articulate the information that you're yeah. conveying. <laughs> so you can diffuse the situation, even if you've had like a stressful race or a bad quality or something like that, you know? Yeah, of course. And, and I, I've never told a driver not to be emotional when they're upset um, about uh, a race because it shows that they're passionate and it shows that they care. You know, that's so important. Um, But at the same time, you need to have the sort of skills, the intellect and the professionalism to know, you know, when it's too much and and how to rein in uh, that emotional side and get back to that logical way of thinking uh, quickly. Um, But, but not ignoring that it's, it's good and, and healthy to have an emotion 
uh, you can't be a robot. You yeah. Know? We're all humans and, and it's important for us to convey that. So... And as well, they all, everyone just wants to win, which is if they, if they don't, then why are they there? You know, it's, it's important they have that. But like you say, if they've got um, overalls with how many sponsors on, they need to make sure they are being as uh, sensible as possible on the camera. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And then from, you know, it's something that as coaches we can install and, and educate and mentor young drivers into practicing that from a younger age because especially at the kart track um, it's going to be a different environment to a formula track and when you progress up through the formula it becomes more serious uh, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of money involved and there's sponsors involved etc so their professional attitude is super, is very important as an athlete but that's just not just in motor racing that's across the board in, yeah. in all sports uh, so there's no, nothing uh, unique about that. But as a uh, performance coach, that's definitely something you can help with. And again, having those specialists behind you to help in that respect is so important. So you can filter that information through because we are effectively the closest person to the driver. There's no one closer than the performance coach to the driver uh, apart from the manager and the parents. Yeah. So it's, you know, our, our role is very important and we are there as a friend, as well as a colleague, as well as a um, a mentor. Yeah, and I think in a few, uh, that is quite a difficult position to be in sometimes. As much as I, I love what I do, um, I love I, I love every aspect of it. But sometimes when you are, because you do have to be close to them, and obviously you want them to win just as much as they do, and and also sometimes you, it's hard because you you want the best for them, and, and when when they're not having the best weekend or you know that you can tell that they're not quite right and you have to really support them mentally as well as obviously everything else, making sure they've got everything they need. I think sometimes that is quite difficult because you are, you do get closer and closer to them and you just, you want them to win just as much as they do. So, and then sometimes it's hard for you not to, obviously you can't react and you have to remain positive. You can't get angry. And I think sometimes I've found that difficult in the past where it's just like, right, you need, you need to be calming him down rather than you getting stressed about what's happened. What's happened. So again, it is sometimes it can be a real tough position to be, um, as well as really enjoyable. But again, there's there's always some difficult elements because competition, anything can happen, and it usually does, especially on the racetrack. So, but again, I suppose that what that's what makes what we do. You know, it makes us love what we do. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I early on I decided that. I much preferred working with the young athletes as opposed to the older athletes because you can see them develop and it's more challenging, it's more rewarding, it's more exciting seeing a young driver progress. And when they win, as you said, you're just as happy as they are yeah. to see them win and be part of that journey and that process. Um, that that's that's what's most important to me and every driver that I've worked with I, I I hold those moments dear whenever they win or win it especially when they have a championship yeah um, because it just makes you feel like you did a good job yeah and for me that's all that matters is that you do a good job yeah and you're you're part of that championship because you you help them through and you got them there you know yeah exactly yeah I mean I mean I I, I never take any credit for them winning they they won it's just that i like to 
feel part of that process, you Definitely. know, preparing them. So in order for them to optimise their performance, and we'll obviously talk about the physiological and psychological side to a point um, about what these guys go through shortly, but you you are effectively there to prepare and manage their performance in you know so they can actually uh, deliver their skill so that skill acquisition of driving requires energy requires fuel in in term, in relation to nutrition uh, requires a very high level of physical ability and fitness to actually manage the whole race um, they have to have a element of um, confidence and a certain mindset to endure that whole weekend and remain you know calm with dealing with emotions that are going up and down and 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 their competitors you know and 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 all of the other distractions that are going on throughout the whole weekend trying to stay in the zone as i call it is very very difficult and the performance coach can be there to try and keep them in that zone but sometimes it's best for us just to step away and just let them deal with their own emotion and their own way of getting themselves into that uh, rather than feeling like we always have to be doing something with them. Yeah. Um, so the warm-up process, getting ready prior to the actual sessions or qualifying races, it heats, whatever it might be, um, is a very important process. However, it needs to be very individualized, and the good old, the good old sort of uh, fashion warm up of going through some kind of raising of the heart rate, activating, mobilizing the the muscles in the body and the joints, etc., and then potentiating, uh, meaning sort of getting that nervous system prepared and ready. It's, it's great and it's really important, but it doesn't always work for every driver to go through that whole process. So that's what we call the ramp protocol, which most athletes will go through to, to actually prepare for sort of their main training session or competition or whatever it might be. But sometimes that's not always applicable and some drivers prefer doing a more therapy-based type warm-up approach. Um, so the whole thing has to be rationalised to the driver's needs yeah in that respect it's and it's like I say it's so important to have that individualization um like i've had i had a, a driver in the past who was quite sedentary so if you did sort of really energetic warm-up before he went out it's was, it was the worst thing you could ever do um but like he it was just we just did dynamic movement it's just we just did some tennis ball drills just to get him sort of a little bit fired up um, and then you compare it to uh, one of my other drivers who l- needs music in his ears. He 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 just he does need to be sort of uh, sort of woken up before he goes on the track. And it's just amazing how um, they're all doing. They're doing essentially they're driving around the same track and doing the same thing. But yet they need completely different warm ups or protocols. And I sort of love that as well. You know how you can essentially get people race ready in such different ways but yeah it's so important to discover what that is and what that actual person needs before they go out on the track yeah absolutely and this is where it comes down to experience you know experience working with a number of different drivers to understand they all have different needs because you know education and knowledge is fantastic and is very important but experience is 
is is what counts most. And to build that experience from the start, you start to understand that athletes are all individuals and have different ways of wanting to work to prepare themselves effectively. And that there's no there's no right way. Sometimes um, the textbook might tell you to do a certain method, a certain methodology, but that doesn't always work. And it's really catering for the needs of the individual, especially when it comes to preparing and warming up effectively. So, so I think, so I think, yeah, absolutely. The warm up, the preparation stage for young athletes and drivers, especially, is is very, very important to get right. And I've always believed, and I'm not a psychologist, uh, that drivers' personality dictates. Uh, a lot of their driving style and sort of the way they want to prepare and and things like that. So if you've got a driver, for example, um, in some cases who is already quite a hyped up individual, sometimes you need to calm them down a little bit to find that balance, yeah. that homeostasis or balance, you know, the kind of, that, that kind of um, the way they want to feel prepared. And if you give them a lot of sort of, uh, neural sort of uh, neuromuscular kind of you know um, speed agility you know hyping up their nervous system uh, potentiation exercises it might send them over the edge too much you yeah. know it might they, they they're already like that yeah. so you <laughs> so when they put their helmet on get in the car it's just there's too much yeah, yeah there's too much yeah yeah so they go to the first corner too much <laughs> too much <laughs> pump the brakes yeah lots of oversteer um on the on the exit you know so um i i think i think then you have the driver who is very very chilled out yeah. <laughs> personality super very super relaxed type personality and then you almost they they may prefer then to be woken up a little bit more and go for that what i call a neural wake up so you kind of uh you can do some ball drills with them and things like that to get their nervous system sort of firing up but yeah so i guess it comes down you you, you have to use scientific principles and rationale um however you also need to work with the individual as well and and they need to tell you how they want to feel and then you need to find the right uh, method and process in order for them to get them into that state of mind and body so they feel fully prepared in the cockpit or the uh, cart awesome so going back to you and your career, um, obviously I know you're at McLaren for quite a while. Yeah, so could you just give us just a little bit more sort of information on some of the drivers you've worked with um, and yeah, just give us a bit more, more insight into your time time with McLaren. So I, I've worked with, uh, I've worked with over 30 racing drivers over 14 years. Um, I've done as many F1 tests, Formula 1 tests with nine uh, and some um, races, Formula 1 races with nine Formula 1 drivers. That's uh, pretty well. <laughs> so now, now you know why I'm always, I always used to pick Simon's brains. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I just want to quickly ask you about this, about this training plan. Uh, and, uh, but the three, the three main drivers that I worked with uh, during my period uh, at McLaren were Kevin Magnussen, Stoffel Van Dorn and Nick De Vries. Yeah. So I worked with them, especially Nick from 14 years old uh, upwards for over a decade. Uh, Stoffel and Kevin uh, sort of four or five years apiece working with them in the entry level formulas up to 
Formula One, getting them ready ultimately for Formula One. So you're always getting them ready for the next transition. You're never just preparing them for the formula they're in. Formula they're in. Yeah, it's and always the, the next step. Yeah. Yeah, the next step and the physiological uh, sort of strains and constraints that are on them change as they progress in the formula, especially Formula One and Formula Two. And when we go into the physical side a bit later, but you're always sort of looking ahead, effectively. So, yes, I've, I've worked with a number of drivers um, throughout that period. I was Heike Kovalainen's trainer in 2008, which was an inc- incredible experience. Uh, we, got, we got on really well, still get on really well now. Uh, in fact, I keep in touch with all the drivers I work with pretty much and have a, and have a good relationship with them. So... So yeah, yeah. Going to your question, um, yeah, I've I've got a lot of experience working with racing drivers, and and I continue doing that today. Yeah, um, and even uh, Nick, that's a that's a long time with one athlete, so it's, it's so important, like you say, to have that relationship because that's that's a that's a long amount of time. That's a lot of training sessions. There's a lot of assessments. There's, it's just so much involved. Um, but it's just so important that you can create those relationships, and also then that become lasting friendships. You know. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Nick um, De Vries, who won the Formula 2 Championship, uh, that was one of my f- um, greatest moments in my career of uh, feeling like I'd been part of that process in preparing him for that win, which was a very, very special win. And now he's in Formula E um, and, and working with Mercedes as well in Formula 1. Yeah, he's a test driver now for Formula, mm. Formula 1. Mercedes. Yeah, which is, which, which is fantastic. So... Yeah, to see to see the young athletes progress is as I as I get older is I can look back and the legacy of of working with and preparing young athletes over that period and especially you know with Nick over over a decade is like you say it's a long long period of time um, it goes quick uh, but you go through a lot together and you cement that relationship uh, forever. Yeah, and I think. I think that's partly why I love I, I sort of love love it so much, you know, just because we're doing what we're doing as a performance coach, but then we get we get the rewards of them doing well and seeing them progress. Obviously everyone has their bad days, but it's just great to be a part of that, you know. Um, and I think that's what I find the most rewarding is um, the sort of feedback you get from them and just seeing them progress, like I say, throughout the formulas and um, throughout their career. Okay, so going back to conditioning now, for people that obviously don't understand as much about motorsport and what is required physically, comparing, say, moving from karting into cars, just say, for example, moving into F4, I know they can go into GTs, but just giving that an example, what, what sort of difference do they need? What, what, what do you, how do you need to change things up training-wise? That's a good question. So in the karting years... Uh, we call this the kind of grassroots racing. They're spending co- considerable amounts of time in the seat, in the cart. So they're getting a lot of practice time. So similar to like a tennis player can just take their racket, hire out a court anywhere around the country and, and sort of practice their craft. Unfortunately, when you transition to formula, that uh, becomes a lot more difficult and you get a lot less time in the car and now if you look at Formula One, even less time. So this is why they start to implement uh, simulators um, so they can practice. But the simulators are often created to develop the car rather than actually 
allow the driver to practice, but they obviously do practice um, in the simulators, but nothing can compare to the real world. So going back to karting, they spend a considerable amount of time practicing their, their craft. Um, I know karters who are almost karting every weekend. So as performance coaches, they tend to be an age uh, of an age, anything from say eight to 15 before they actually transition. So considerable amounts of time karting, you know. That's a serious amount of laps. Thousands of hours and considerable amounts of laps, etc. And because they are going through that growth stage at that at that crucial period, our role as the their performance coaches revolves around strength and conditioning and monitoring their maturation and their technical competence and building up their sort of stability and their neuromuscular control and their overall sort of athletic base. And then when they go through that transition transition stage into formula, and in this example, Formula 4, is a very different beast, you know, from a kart to a Formula 4 car. And in actual fact, the actual G-force uh, isn't too, too dissimilar, uh, especially in KZ karting, the really high-performance karts, and they pull quite a quite a lot of G's. And they, so they're, and they break seriously hard, don't they, KZ? Yeah, exactly. Um, when they go into formula, the the break the braking is is different and, and almost a different technique as such in terms of the corner entry, mid corner, and exit uh, techniques. Uh, they they learn a new kind of uh, way of of applying that effectively, and the forces against the brake pedal uh, become more extreme. So then the conditioning changes. So say for example, you're working with a carter on their neuromuscular control and their stability and their sort of technique, etc., their technical competence, uh, technical competencies uh, within their training, etc. When they move into that formula, they can then you can then start implementing more specific types of training. So we can use a lot of anti-rotation movements, for example, to help them cope with G-force. So we always use the example of the neck, uh, but what is also involved in cornering is obviously uh, their vital organs are being compressed, their spines being compressed, and they, they need to have very good uh, core control and function to actually ensure that the muscles uh, can help stabilize the spine, can help sort of support and control obviously their, their trunk, their vital organs. And then we talk about the neck and the neck then being strong and stable to then support the, the head weight with also a helmet. So head and weight approximately around six, six and a half kilos. Then you've got the application of two to three, maybe two and a half G. Uh, so you multiply six and a half by that and you get around sort of between 12 and 15 kilos of force against the head. And all of that is then coming onto their core as well. So anti-rotational movements means that you are uh, stopping yourself rotating. Similar to when you're cornering, you're trying to maintain your body in a sort of stable, neutral position without moving. And this is where you need to have very good control of your of your sort of uh, and stability of your body to keep yourself in that position. So yeah, sports specificity is very important, and to try and replicate 
the conditions and the physiological constraints that they feel in the car is important and get more specific as they transition from karting to formula. Yeah. Um, as well, what, what people sort of tend to forget is they're getting that sort of G per corner and there's how, however many corners per lap and they're doing however many laps. And yeah, one race they might do 25 laps. Obviously F1 is more, but then they, they've got, they do testing, they'll do practice, they'll do quality, they'll do race one, race two, race three. This is in the lower formulas. So that is a lot of laps, that is a lot of Gs and it's, people just don't, don't really realise what they're going through. Obviously, I know the F1 races are, are, are even longer and the G-forces are even more as they progress. So it's um, it's really enduring. It's, it's, it's tough to um, tough to get through a race weekend of that, especially if they're competing in the heat, um, obviously trying to stay hydrated and things like that. Yeah, I mean, in Formula, I mean, we talked about Formula 4, but then as you progress into Formula 3, um, G-force increases and, and then increases again in Formula 2. And then increases again in Formula One. You know, there's this graduation of force and also steering load as well. So steering torque increases. I mean, Formula Two steering load is, is extremely heavy. Uh, and then you progress into Formula One, and they have power steering. But then they have greater g-force. So under braking in the current Formula One car, it can increase up to around six g, which is That's insane. around thirty nine to forty kilos of force against the head. Um, and and their trunk and the body, you know, um, so it's it's extremely important that these athletes are trained accordingly and prepared properly um, as they graduate through the different formulas up to Formula One. If they're lucky to get to Formula One, uh, fortunate, I shouldn't say lucky, I say fortunate, and worked hard to get to Formula One, that uh, that they are prepared uh, properly for that. So. Karting, as I said, still has a certain level of, of force, and any driver that, even a Formula One driver that jumps in a car, will tell you how physical it is. Yeah, especially if you, especially if you're abroad at tracks like Le Conquer and stuff. Yes, and um, they just get absolutely beaten up. Um, especially because it's always warm, there's always loads of grip. Um, it's incredible how how hard it can be um, sticking a, a fast lap in at a track like that. It's so physical, so physical, and. The driving style and application is very different in formula as opposed to karting. Karting is very dynamic. You can use your body to kind of transition uh, and uh, you know use your you, use your body mass um, to to um, uh, whereas in single seater they're heavily strapped into the cockpit and there's very very little movement and the only movement is obviously with braking and throttle. And their head uh, can move um, in sort of that 30 degrees of rotation. And the arms are obviously moving with around the 30 degree angle at the elbow, for example. Um, and then obviously st steering clockwise, anti-clockwise movements. So although it's not dynamic like a footballer on a pitch, for example, and of course their transfer of, of their mass is happening all the time, yeah. you know, and the energy systems and the, are changing um, exponentially all the time when they're moving, whether they're sprinting or whether they're walking or whether they're sort of um, in that sort of mid locomotion uh, velocity uh, stage, you know, whatever it is. Whereas a driver is sort of in that fixed, almost isometric, so you call it position, similar to lying in a bathtub. Yeah. So if you put your feet on top of the taps, 
put your head back. That's a sort of position, reclined position that the drivers are in. And then if you can imagine the, the sides of the bath are sort of slowly compressing their bodies um, forcefully <laughs> in cornering, and then you're pushing the, uh, sort of the weight of, uh, of a 10, 12-year-old child pushing against their head uh, for a short few seconds in a corner, up to sort of, you know, say six or seven seconds of a high-speed long corner, then these are the kind of loads that these drivers are experiencing. And then couple that with the room temperature, the ambient temperature being around 50 degrees, up to 60 degrees in some cases the cockpits can um, increase to. And they are then wearing multiple layers of clothing with their sort of fireproof uh, race suits and their under uh, garments and their balaclava gloves boots, socks, uh, and their helmet. So their whole body's covered in these microclimates. And then the cockpit creates another microclimate. So they can't thermoregulate properly. So they need to have very high levels of endurance, uh, stamina, and capabilities uh, to withstand these really hot, humid uh, environments. And it's hot all the time, even if even if the ambient, the outside temperature is say below 20 degrees inside the cockpit is still very hot and they still can't thermoregulate particularly well so imagine if if the actual cockpit temperature is then 50 degrees and they're trying to regulate properly and and the largest organ of the body is the skin and if you if you can't do that job effectively then you're going to be in trouble and then your cognitive performance is going to be affected. Your ability to concentrate and focus and process information um, through your senses is going to be affected. So when somebody says to me, you know, why do drivers need to be fit? Well, that just gives you an idea of why. And then you've got braking with a force of around 80, uh, say, sorry, say around 80 to 100 kilos. If you look at most of the papers, uh, they tell you it's sort of around the 80 kilo mark, um, but it can be a little bit greater than that and they're having to forcefully slam their foot against uh should we say the brake pedal or a wall for example if you can just uh, picture that imagine that uh multiple times over a, a lap and then multiple times over a, ra- a race you know thousands of pounds of of force added up over a race on their left leg yeah and then their right leg is responsible for throttle and sort of fine motor control uh, which they require uh, on the pedals to drive these cars. Now we shouldn't take take into con- we should take into consideration that the skill of driving they've been practicing for years and years and years for thousands of repetitions for for multiple circuits every weekend during their karting and they're moving through formula, which which allows them to be able to do do that. And the likes of you or I wouldn't have that capability. But having said that. For them to deliver that skill, they need to optimize their human performance through the applications of the perfect sort of nutritional strategies to ensure that they're hydrating effectively and that they're replacing uh, the sort of lost salts, um, should we say, through electrolyte uh, supplementation, uh, for example, if that's uh, if that's been advised by the nutritionist. Um, there are other ways to, to sort of replace salts. So that can be helpful, uh, especially in the formula when, when the competence is very high. 
um, that we would use some form of supplementation to uh, help with that. And then optimizing their overall nutritional strategies, both um, at the weekend and away from the weekend, uh, especially higher carbohydrates at the weekends um, because they're burning more glycogen. Uh, their brain obviously thrives off that fuel um, and so do the muscles. So a uh, higher carbohydrate intake is required, especially over a competitive weekend. And then away from the track, uh, then getting the right balance of their nutrition to help optimize their recovery is going to be then more paramount at that point. So, so hopefully that gives you a little bit of an idea of why these drivers need to optimize their performances and the differences between transitioning from karting to formula um, on the training side from the strength and conditioning side it's going to be more kind of specific conditioning or specificity whereas in the early days in the kind of um, grassroots days you're developing their athletic base and their competencies which you can then layer up their ability to perform as an athlete when they get into formula awesome that's fantastic okay so what other considerations would you say need to be addressed in conditioning a race driver so there's the obvious um, areas of thermoregulation um, when the ambient temperature is is high in the enclosed cockpit um, and having to wear multiple layers of clothing which create these microclimates so their hydration strategies need to be need to be spot on is that it's also the effects of actually the car itself and on the engineering the mechanical side um, how that can affect the drivers so for example um, we did touch on steering load but um, steering torque load is um, extremely high in in single seater and and they have obviously the benefits of power steering in formula one uh, so if you reduce, for example, the trail, um, you can't feel the tyre grip and steering becomes more unpredictable. So you need a strong upper body um, to maintain and control the direction of the car, um, which is which is really important. Um, I did have the benefit of working with some top uh, engineers for many years and working with them very closely and understanding the effects of the car on the driver so and understanding what different aspects of driving um, and the car place on the driver so another one is downforce so um, the cars increase their downforce uh, especially in formula uh, which obviously um, provides um, uh, grip uh, with obviously the tyre compounds um, so increasing downforce increases uh, the g-force and g-load as we call it uh, but generally due to the increased drag uh, you go slower so the load on the driver is actually similar um, so the range isn't huge due to uh, you get like a coupling effect so although that coupling effect means um, that um, it's similar the actual um, g-force is still uh, high under braking and in cornering so we, what we call this in G-force is like a horizontal or longitudinal and vertical G-force. Now, because then because drivers aren't on a banked circuit, they're going to have a sort of lower level of vertical G and have to tolerate more horizontal and, um, and longitudinal G-forces. 
so we call this wex, um, x y and z and the z forces is this vertical g that pilots experience and also certain tracks can increase somewhat if they're banked like Zamfort uh, has a banks pass of the circuit can increase this and or, then or El Rouge and Spa which is like a wall yeah yeah, yeah. so the, the, if it's more of a kind of if it's more of a cornered banked circuit yeah. it's going to build up that sort of vertical that vertical g4 so generally speaking for a formula one car they're gonna they're gonna have quite a low level um and uh, because most don't have these bank circuits uh whereas pilots have to wear g suits for example when the g4 levels are very high um as the aircraft um, is maneuvering um that, that then becomes very important uh, otherwise they can potentially black out uh, go unconscious um, because the you get the blood drawn away from the head and compression of the lungs etc so so yeah and then you have uh, a f- the buffeting and helmet lift can be a bit of an issue sometimes so uh, obviously with airflow they their helmet can uh, lift and they have to then ha- add spoilers to the helmet yeah so you'll see drivers with uh, like the chin spoilers and they, they, all, they all run chin spoilers now. Like yeah, chin. exactly. Yeah, and all of this is is to help prevent yeah prevent that buffeting effect. Yeah, and stop the helmet lifting. Yeah, obviously. Yeah, exactly. Um, so there's lots of lots of different technologies that have improved over the years to help stop this happening. But in the early years, obviously those things used to be a bit of an issue. So screen the screen height as well. So they have a look a little tiny screen on the on the actual uh, cars. And that's also to help offset that problem, um, which can place considerable strain on the muscles of the neck complex, especially if you've got this head that's um, sorry, this helmet that's being pulled, trying to you know effectively almost pulled off the head. Um, the next one is car balance. So corners are usually oversteer oversteer limited on entry, um, going into the mid corner. And you get a, you get effectively an understeer. Uh, so as you exit the corner and wind up the steering lock, uh, the front grip of the car uh, can suddenly oversteer. So you get like these oversteered moments. Um, so like little snapping of the steering wheel. Yeah. So especially in like Formula Three and Formula Two, they have to have you know strong upper body um, capabilities to control that. Uh, and it's all, all, also if they if they build, if they get on the throttle, uh, sometimes a little bit too early, you can get this little yeah, snap oversteer moment. Back, it? Yeah. So, so yeah, you've got to consider those aspects working with drivers um, on that sort of, should we say, that physics side. Yeah. Okay, Simon. Well, thanks so much for your time. Um, I, I personally really enjoy it. It's always good to catch up, um, and also it's great to get an insight into all the people you've worked with, and also the level in which you condition drivers. Um, and yeah it's been great having you on I really appreciate you having you as a guest thanks very much James uh, obviously it's just a little bit of a snapshot insight we could talk about many of those different aspects for a, a long period of time but however I think, I think that is the issue we could talk about it all yeah. day <laughs> <laughs> uh, we could just talk about all different uh, yeah we could just keep talking about it all day but I, I really appreciate it and um, I really enjoyed it and I think we should get a couple boring, maybe pick some different topics and then we can go out just to give everyone plenty of awesome information about about drivers and conditioning and, and all they can do to improve their performance. Sounds great.
Thanks, Simon. Speak to you soon. Thank you.